0: Welcome to Money Talks, a series of interviews with me, Liam Halligan, economics and business editor of GB News. In this episode, I talk to Michael Portillo, former Tory MP and party leadership candidate who served as both Defence Secretary and Chief Secretary to the Treasury. In this wide-ranging interview, Portillo explains why he thinks Rishi Sunak's budget statement wasn't conservative, describes Boris Johnson as unreliable and highlights how the Bank of England is addictive to quantitative easing. Yet drawing on decades of experience, the politician turned highly successful TV presenter gives an upbeat assessment of the prospects for the UK economy and broader society. Michael Portillo, thanks so much for joining us here on The Money. You are a former Chief Secretary to the Treasury. Um, The first evening GB News broadcast, we were responding to an interview, weren't we, with uh, Rishi Sunak. So what did you make of his latest budget?
1: I thought it ushered in an existential crisis, or an identity crisis, at least, for the Conservative Party, because what Rishi has put forward is a high-tax, high-spend budget. This is what Conservatives have consistently argued against. It is not what they believe in, and more than that, most Conservatives are convinced that these sorts of policies are doomed to failure. It was cheered on the day. It may have gone down well in the Red Bull seats. But many Conservatives will fear that these, these policies will result in catastrophe, which is what they've always predicted.
0: So it's not actually a Conservative budget that Rishi Sunak just delivered? No, I didn't think it was at all a Conservative budget. And there was this rather
1: pathetic postscript when you talked about yearning for a low tax economy. But uh, I think you and I would be very surprised indeed if he's able, either politically or economically, towards the end of the Parliament, suddenly to throw the gears into reverse and to start cutting taxes. No, it looks to me as though the economic policy for the rest of this Parliament, and indeed probably beyond, has been set. It creates problems for the Labour Party, there is no doubt, Difficult to oppose. Difficult to oppose. Difficult whether they should now say that they're going to spend more or whether they should try stealing Conservative clothes and saying that we need to be a bit more careful. So problems for the Labour Party. But but I still think that the problems for the Conservative Party are more striking.
0: You're a former Chief Secretary to the Treasury, as I said, former Shadow Chancellor. You've put budgets together. You know that in the end it all revolves around the growth numbers. Rishi Sunak's betting on 6.5% growth this year and six percent growth the next year. Can Britain really grow at the same pace or even faster than China for two years in a row?
1: Well we're talking about growing from a substantially reduced economy as a result of the uh, pandemic. I mean I don't know the answer to your question and I'm absolutely sure the Chancellor doesn't (laughs) know the answer to your question. But by and large chancellors who bet on you know the 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 outer numbers the 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 best case scenarios uh, don't normally do very well because the best case scenario is not normally the one that's delivered
0: a lot of british economic policy making in recent years pretty much since the global financial crisis has basically assumed that the bank of england would keep expanding its balance sheet under this process called quantitative Easing. Now, there's been very little public discussion of quantitative easing. It's been left to newspaper columnists and other renegades to criticise it. But we've done more QE, Michael, haven't we? I know you'll have noticed too, in the last 18 months than we've done in the previous decade. Do you agree with the Economic Affairs Committee of the House of Lords, as they said in their seminal report, which the Treasury and the Bank of England didn't like, that we're potentially addicted Quantitative
1: easing? It's gone on for a very long time. I think it's gone on for a great deal longer than anyone predicted. The reasons that were at the origin of quantitative easing have long since ceased to be. Uh, And therefore, yes, this does appear to be an addiction. And we are approaching a period where we are going to be paying higher interest rates as a nation, and the government's going to be paying higher interest rates on its debt. Uh, and what that means is that year by year more and more of your annual budget is preempted in paying the interest on your debt that means there's less room for other programs and yet nearly all those other programs are scheduled for increase so yes it simply increases the uh, the problems that the chancellor is likely to have there are still people who think you know that money that is spent by governments is better spent than uh, the money that is spent by individuals I mean, recently, there's been a bit of a backlash against these uh, entrepreneurs who have enormous charitable trusts, as though they were spending money less well than government. But just about the same day as we had the budget, we also had this report from a select committee on track and trace, you know, the the programme that was run during the pandemic, £37 billion worth. And it turned out that the programme has made virtually no difference at all. You know, employing vast numbers of consultants on £1,100 a day and at one point, at the height of the pandemic, not being able to make use of much more than one in ten of those consultants. So people who still believe in the efficacy of money that's spent by the government just aren't taking account of the evidence
0: that's there before us. But you all know, Michael, that the reason... Uh, the government is spending so much money. It's all facilitated by borrowing, borrowing that isn't reflected in the the, the, the price of that debt. The gilts market, if you will, is rigged because the Bank of England is buying up most of the gilts. What are the historic dangers here of that guilt uh, market not signalling to the world immediately that there's too much borrowing going on, given that the Bank of England has smothered the gilts market with QE?
1: Well, I think no one has written more and better about this than you have, and I'm not going to try and second-guess you. I think, you know, what you've said on this is wise, and, and it's a cautionary tale that the government ought to be thinking about. Let me just broaden this and say that I think it actually goes to the heart of an issue with democracy, which is that democracy turns out to be about different parties in any country competing with each other to promise to spend more of the public's money. And and this is why so many democratic governments find themselves in huge amounts of debt, because all the impulses within the democratic system are to overpromise. It is broadly thought that any party that overpromises is more likely to get elected. Well, of course, this is leading to a situation where most Western governments are deeply in debt, and where we face you know, two possibilities. One is that we can't continue this forever. And the second is that we're passing debt down to our grandchildren and beyond. Uh, and this becomes a serious weakness in democracy. And there don't seem to be the impulses within democratic systems to make anyone take this seriously. Yeah. Not the electorate and not the governments. Not the governments because they won't be there in a few years' time. And I think Boris you know, has a very bad case of this particular disease because not only in the matters that we've been talking about, which is public expenditure and taxation, but generally speaking, let's talk about climate change, if you like, you know, Boris just believes that you promise today and either the thing will somehow take care of itself in a a micawberish sort of way, something will turn up, or even if it doesn't, you know, Boris won't be there infinitely. So the kicking of the can down the road has, has been absolutely elevated to an art form under this government. And what's obviously slightly disappointing is to see that Rishi Sunak is borne along by this wave.
0: I agree with that. I think the Prime Minister sees economic uh, stewardship uh, and prudent management of our national accounts as an inconvenience rather than an obligation. I mean, do you think he's interested in economics at all, beyond what economics can bring him in his ability to spend money and win votes?
1: Well, I'd have to claim an expertise about Boris Johnson which I don't uh, possess. My general assessment of him in many years that I've known him is is that he is unreliable. However the other thing that he is, is a stupendous winner of elections. I mean I've never known a person like him whose charisma can win elections. And so this is, this is part of the problem for the Conservative Party now. I mean, they've got a Prime Minister who makes hideous errors, as over the Owen Paterson case, a Prime Minister who doesn't appear to be following Conservative policies, but a fellow who is very good at winning elections. And quite honestly, if I were advising any Conservative member of Parliament, now, if they said to me, look, this fellow isn't a Conservative, this fellow makes promises without any concern for tomorrow, this person makes catastrophic errors, he, he, he produces disaster out of pure air, I would say to that person, <laughs> yeah, but stick with Boris because he's going to win you the election.
0: I want to come on to uh, international relations. We can talk about uh, China. I want to talk about COP26. But before we do, I just want to get a little bit more personal, if, if I may. We both come from the same sort of unfashionable North London suburb. Your story is a story of British post-war social mobility. You went from grammar school, the son of an immigrant, to Cambridge and into national prominence. Do you think Britain is more or less socially mobile than it was when you were a lad? Oh,
1: I would guess less socially mobile, and I would in particular pick out the absence of grammar schools. They're not completely absent, but there are fewer than they used to be. Uh, Was it Alan Milburn, who was the Labour cabinet minister, did work on social mobility and concluded that it had been reduced. But before you paint me as, you know, a sort of working class hero, um, my parents did not have a lot of money, but they had something more important as far as I was concerned. They had books. I was brought up in a house surrounded by books. I was brought up in a highly intellectual atmosphere. And I think possibly the greatest deprivation that I would point to is not so much the lack of money, it's the lack of intellectual stimulus. And so, you know, I am not a, an amazing case of someone who climbed the ladder. My, my father was a university professor. My mother had a first from Oxford, mm. you know, an undergraduate in 1937. She was you know, pretty much a pioneer woman. So, no, no, what I had was books. And that was, the, that was the greatest advantage that any boy could have.
0: What do you think we need to do to enhance that social mobility in this country, which I know is really close to, to, to your heart. We've spoken about it in the past. How can we try and make sure that there are more people from really ordinary backgrounds at our top universities, you know, in our arts, starring in our films, taking the big jobs that lots of people notice? It's not just about gender or racial diversity, is it? It's about diversity of social, economic background and... of opinion surely in a democracy the most important diversity of all?
1: Well, in education we've never had parity of esteem between intellectual pursuits and other pursuits. my dear friend ken baker who was an education secretary has for years been arguing that we ought to have three or four different sorts of school that ought to cater to people's different abilities and they ought to command parity of esteem and we're nowhere near that we abolished grammar schools because they showed up the secretary modern schools we've introduced comprehensives uh, and we have done away with education that some people regarded as elitist but we've taken away opportunities for many bright children I suppose, broadly speaking, many teachers do not believe nearly enough in their pupils. They don't give them enough encouragement or enough hope. Uh, Teachers uh, sometimes settle for mediocrity. But I think within um, many businesses, I probably only understand the media. We are very lacking in opportunities for people to come up. Now, for example, in media, we now have short-term contracts for most people. And most of the work uh, requires you to live maybe in central London. So, what kind of person can work on a short-term contract and live in central London? Someone who can rely on the bank of mum and dad. So, you wonder why there's so little diversity in the media, why everyone speaks with the same accent and and occupies the same sort of biosphere. And this, I'm sure, is much worse than it was 20 or 30 years ago when organisations like the BBC had broad apprenticeships to which anybody could aspire to enter.
0: Let's talk a little bit about um, the Labour front bench. You're a very astute observer of politics, I know. Who should the Conservative Party fear most on the Labour front bench: Keir Starmer or someone else? Well, someone else.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, who that someone is, I don't know. Um, I, I don't think the person is there. I mean, broadly speaking, when we talk about parties going into decline and parties emerging from decline, Portillo's law, I think, states that every now and again a charismatic figure comes along and that that is what really matters. So uh, I saw Margaret Thatcher come along, I saw Tony Blair come along, I saw David Cameron come along, I've seen um, Boris Johnson come along. So each time it wasn't actually about ideology, it wasn't about party reform, it was simply the emergent, emergence of a charismatic figure. This could happen to Labour any time. I don't think that person's on the front bench at the moment. But one day such a figure will arrive, I mean, my goodness, you know, we waited for a David Cameron night waiting for a messiah, if that's not too uh, sacrilegious. Uh, you know, Boris has been an extraordinary phenomenon. But Labour has had these figures in the past. Tony Blair is the, the chief example. And there's no way of predicting this. But one day the Labour Party will rise from the ashes because it will have a tremendous leader.
0: You came along and you were and are very charismatic. Um, do you have regrets you didn't lead your party? You didn't lead this country?
1: I, I do not have regrets. I'm probably a bit more charismatic than I used to be. Actually, you may remember that my defeat was cheered to the echo, so that's not what happens to a charismatic because person. Because the
0: left knew you were dangerous. No, no, you, no. You, well... You're talking about when you lost uh, Enfield-Southgate in uh, 97.
1: Back in 97. The
0: Portillo moment, as it was called. Yeah, yeah. Stephen Twiggs standing next to you, grinning. And Jeremy Brown for the Lib Dems on the other side.
1: A great moment for me, because it was the opening of my second career. But, no, I was too, um, I was too thin-skinned uh, uh, to, to be the party leader. I, I had one quality which was I liked to make decisions. And I get so impatient with people in politics who don't like to make decisions. But one quality isn't enough. I mean, Boris doesn't like to make decisions, but, but you know, he is an election winner. I mean, I think back now, Boris won two mayoral terms in London, yeah. which I now regard as a sort of Huge achievement. broadly socialist city. Yeah. Huge achievement. So this, this, this man, it's incredible what he's capable of. And you've just asked how. I mean, you know, a, a classicist from Balliol, from Eton. Terrible college. A, ma- a
0: man of the people. How does this happen? <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about COP26. It strikes me that um, much of our mainstream media, print and broadcast, just accepts the entire net zero agenda. If we don't adhere to it, then... The world's going to go into meltdown. What's your view?
1: I think we're driven by a certain amount of religiosity, and a little touch of hysteria. I don't, I don't like the way in which policy is being made. I mean, I understand the point which Tim Davie of the BBC would make, that there is a broad consensus of opinion about global warming. Fine. And, and man's role in that. Fine. But I'm not sure we've ever properly considered... You know What are our options? How might we tackle that if we're in danger of certain cities being overwhelmed? What is the most cost-effective way of dealing with that problem? Clearly in a world that has experienced lots of climate change before. But we're, we're carried along. There's a, there's a wave of quasi-religious enthusiasm. So that, although I accept that there's a broad consensus in the science, I don't quite understand how that's, how that's been translated into this, Policy consensus, and, and what I do see is governments making decisions that don't make a lot of sense. I mean, we are now committed in this country to not producing uh, diesel uh, and uh, petrol cars. I think it's after twenty thirty. Uh, twenty thirty. Not long. And I, I don't see the critical path to getting there. I, I don't see the installation of the necessary infrastructure. I don't see the transference of tax. We're going to have to start taxing. These electric vehicles to make up for all the, the duty on fuel yeah. that we're going to be using. And although China is much criticized, I see China in a way as being you know, quite rational, saying, well, look, actually, uh, we haven't yet developed the alternatives and we're quite interested in becoming uh, a bit richer first. And we kind of know what our people are thinking. They're thinking that they want a bit more uh, prosperity. Whereas we are now sort of pretty firmly committed to putting the climate first, above the living standards of our people, without consideration of what's going to cost them in tax or, or other, uh, other costs. And, and I have a feeling that there will one day be a bit of a rowing back. You know, as we, as we approach 2030, I think a lot of the public is going to be saying, but hang on, we don't have the money. Maybe we, we don't even have the technical resources. It's all very well telling people they're going to replace their gas boilers in the next uh, 10 or 15 years which will see whether the technical ability and whether the physical conditions exist where that can
0: happen. You said Boris Johnson is an election winner, and of course he is, but this green stuff, it's not going down well in the red wall, is it? Those seats he has to win, the seats his majority is built on. If you're banning diesel vans by 2030, if you're insisting that households install uh, heat pumps uh, in Victorian-era housing... Uh, when they've got perfectly serviceable gas boilers, you know, ordinary household can't just conjure up the ten, fifteen, twenty thousand pounds in today's money that's going to cost. Couldn't this cost the Tories the election? This untrammeled, unthinking, blind, if you like, rush for net zero without laying out, thinking about, uh, ascribing the costs. Well.
1: I think at some point people are going to think much more about what all of this is going to cost. And the difference between a lobby group and a government is that a lobby group, uh, a teenager from Scandinavia, for example, um, c- can say, you know, only the planet matters, nothing, there are no other considerations. But governments have to weigh different priorities and different considerations. That's more or less the definition of being a government. It's one of the reasons why I worry a lot about the media. I'm here talking to GB News. But so much media now is driven by what used to be called press releases. I suppose now they're tweets. But in other words, driven by the agendas of vested interests and lobby groups. Now, the problem with these things are that they are single interest. And government isn't about single interest. It's about multiple interests. It's about balancing all these different things, making difficult decisions and compromises. And it seems at the moment that Boris has forgotten this, that he's driven entirely by the Green agenda. There will be a day of reckoning. And what he needs to do, actually, is get a little bit ahead of that curve. He he needs to be talking the right language of balance before this becomes a a real problem for him, I think.
0: We mentioned China earlier and David Cameron. During the Cameron-Osborne leadership period, of course, we were entering a golden era of relations with China. Um, That seems to have soured... Curdled to some degree. If you were still on the Tory backbenches, would you join the China Research Group? That's a group of uh, conservatives who are particularly concerned about the UK's relationship with China and see China as increasingly belligerent.
1: I was very rarely on the backbenches, so it's difficult for me to uh, answer that question. <laughs> and I don't entirely. I don't entirely know what the proposition of that group is, so let me answer the question in a different way. My privilege as a former politician, let me (laughs) answer the question I want to answer. I think what is serious about China is that it offers a serious competition to the democratic way of life. Since the fall of the Iron Curtain, at which point we thought that democracy and capitalism had triumphed, there has been another chapter written, and that is that now regimes like China, Russia some of the regimes in the Middle East, are quite seriously saying authoritarianism is a better system for most people than democracy. Why? Because it tends to be more productive of economic growth, which they would argue is what most people care about. It's more stable. It overcomes all sorts of problems. There isn't an issue about building a runway or a railway in China because you just Get on with it. And so you you, you have a better infrastructure, you have a better economy, lots of people do well. Why bother with silly things like freedom of thought, freedom of expression, freedom of writing, a free press? That's not what most people are interested in. Now, this sounds preposterous to you and me, not least because we both work in the media. But I think it's a proposition that quite a lot of people buy into. And what really worries me is that in democracies, I don't see enough evidence that people understand what they've got and that they're sufficiently interested in defending it. And, you know, day by day, we say how corrupt and how rotten our system is. The Owen Patterson thing has given us another festival of saying how corrupt we are. We're not corrupt on a world scale. There may be individuals who are corrupt, I don't know. I've always thought that members of Parliament were broadly like the public. That is to say, some are angels, some are villains, and most of them are somewhere in between, just like the public that they represent. But apart from the virtues of individuals, I mean, democracy is such a good system. It it is about accountability. It is about restraining the abuse of power. It is about not being locked up for what you think or what you believe. And I just don't see people understanding that. They can't see the wood for the trees. They're so obsessed with how rotten the system is. They can't understand how superior it is to the alternatives. And one day it may need to be
0: defended. Do you think lockdown has complicated our relationship with democracy, Michael Portillo?
1: I think it's led lots of people to think that the state taking an ever bigger role is the norm. And I think that is a problem. It, you know, in a way, it's reversed the stuff that I was involved in all those years ago with Thatcherism, where we tried to convince people that to roll, roll back, back the frontiers, to roll back the, the state, state was yeah. the virtuous thing to do. And I still believe that. So people, I think, have tended to believe that when the going gets tough, and that could be any time, the state just does more and more and more. You put you put the state onto a wartime economy. The problem is that I think Boris Johnson may be thinking that
0: too. Michael Portillo, thanks for joining us. Thanks a lot for listening to Money Talks with me, Liam Halligan, economics and business editor of GB News. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, YouTube or wherever you're listening. Do subscribe to this podcast and also check out my daily television show On The Money, 1pm Monday to Friday on GB News or via the GB News app. GB News, Britain's news channel.